1: Hey there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike, and joining me today's episode are Anne-Marie and Emmett from the My Wall Street Analyst Team. Today, we break down one of the hottest trends in both celebrity and investing circles, and that is the rise of weight loss drugs. Estimates have this as a hundred and fifty billion dollar market by the end of 2030, meaning huge opportunities for investors. We also discuss the writers' strike in Hollywood, and finish with the classic elevator pitch. Amory Emmett, welcome to another episode of Stock Club. Uh, before we get into the show today, Emmett, we decided to ambush you here. We hear you're doing mm-hmm. some market research on one of our favorite stocks. What one?
0: How are the you bought, Lululemon pants? You bought oh, the yeah. uh,
1: Lululemon. anti-ball crushing Lululemon pants. <laughs> so. Do you know the girl in the
2: shop in Grafton Street in Dublin, in the Lululemon shop, uh, I don't think she was aware that ABC's for anti-ball sh- Now, I didn't tell her. I okay. detected because she said, these are ABC pants. And I was like, okay, so what's that stand for? And she said, um, I think it's fundamentals, like just ABC. And I was right. mm-hmm, you need mm-hmm. to listen to my podcast. <laughs> but anyway, they, yeah, I I, um, the one in, ta- in, in Dublin City didn't have a waistline that accommodated my growing <laughs> midriff. So I ordered them online and the whole process was really good, and uh, the product i'm I'm actually a fan of already, although there's a there's a a product that's called the 31, okay, so it's the ABC 31 and being as I put in my waist size and I had 31, I figured t- 31 was the <laughs> the length of the leg. The things I got, honestly, a clown wouldn't wear them, so I got to get them taken up. but look, yeah. I'm a happy customer because I'm easy to keep happy. I've new trousers. Who couldn't be happy with that?
0: Nice. I'm glad you didn't go into the shop and immediately go. I'm here for the anti-ball-crushing pants because it might have been seen as a bit aggressive.
1: All my Uh, pants, all my pants are crushing my balls. Please, someone help me. Um, Amory, are you sure that
2: that's what it stands for? Because I know you said it here in the podcast, but I'm like, I don't know. Did they really do that? Uh,
1: yeah, I just, I just proofed a five-page write-up on Lululemon, <laughs> so I hope it's right. Oh yeah, yeah so I, that's I think, a real Chip Wilson thing, I'm sure.
0: I think management like came out and said it because I read it in several articles, and I was like, mm. surely no. But I like I I think that that's like management named it that, but I don't know. Did they did they name the pants ABC, and then they said, oh, ret- retroactively, oh, it stands for anti-ball crushing, or if they came up with that first and then said, well, this is inappropriate, we'll call them the ABCs.
2: So I think Duluth Trading, D-L-T-H, ticker, uh, came up with it first. And it's a stock, it's a business I've owned and watched for years. And they kind of do work clothing that's meant to be worn anywhere. So like dungarees and, you know, wood chipper type clothes. (laughs) They're
1: like (laughs) cars, really, isn't
2: it? Uh, Yeah, exactly. So they had created some kind of collapsible floor for a man's You know anatomy on their trousers and they call them the abcs and that's where i heard it first
1: Mm -hmm.
0: okay yeah
1: there you go right uh so just to make sure that the show isn't completely about testicles uh we better (laughs) get into the main story and that is an interesting one this week so we're very hollywood and la based for our Mm. both stories but the first one is this wave of new weight loss drugs It's actually taken Hollywood and Wall Street by storm for very different reasons, as you can imagine. So the two biggest names are Ozempic, which if you've been kind of anyway on social media, you might have heard of, and Wegovy. These are both manufactured by a Danish pharma company called Novo Nordisk. They become widely popular thanks to celebrities like Kim Kardashian and Elon Musk, and they're kind of now reaching critical mass pretty much. So Emmett, you were looking into this one for our listeners and me as well, because I'm very ignorant of all this, what, what are these weight loss drugs about and what exactly do they do? Yes, indeed, Mike. In early March, The Economist
2: published an article called New Drugs Could Spell an End to the World's Obesity Epidemic, where, as you said, it reported that a new type of drug is generating excitement among the rich and the beautiful. And to paraphrase your opener, Mike, it wrote, Just a jab a week and the weight falls off. Elon Musk swears by it. Influencers sing its praises on TikTok. Suddenly, slimmer Hollywood starlets deny they've taken it. But the latest weight loss drugs are no more cosmetic enhancements. Their biggest beneficiaries will not be celebrities in Los Angeles or Miami, but billions of ordinary people around the world whose weight has made them unhealthy. So... What is it that we all, like, what is it about these drugs? What do we know about them? Well, it's a new class of drug, Mike, called GLP-1 receptor agonists, which are shown huge promise in treating weight loss. And semaglutide, which is just one example, as you mentioned, is developed by Novo Nordisk. And it's demonstrated weight loss in about fif- of about 15% in clinical trials. That's serious weight loss. And it's already being sold out there um, in America, obviously enough, Denmark, Norway, and the, the brand name is, as again, as you said, Mike, it's Wegovi. As you might expect, this is a really big opportunity. And and analysts out there are predicting that the GLP-1 drug market could reach $150 billion in size by 2031, which is really just down the road. And it could become as common as beta blockers or statins, which frankly, once you kind of get old, are almost an inevitable part of the journey. So this is I think it's the right solution at the right time, You could say. Because a couple of years ago, I read a book. I probably talked about it here in Stock Club. And it was called, it's called Homo Deus. And I can't remember who wrote it. And it opened up with some really interesting and stark facts about today and just one generation ago. And one of those facts was that more people today are dying in the world from obesity-related illnesses than from starvation. So when I was a child, when I was a boy, the one of the great global epidemics was starvation. It is still a huge problem, but obesity has overtaken that very rapidly as one of the great threats to well-being and longevity. And getting specific, in 2020, two-fifths of the world's population were overweight or obese, clinically obese. And by 2035, says the World Obesity Federation, that figure could grow to more than half of the world with staggering 4 billion people overweight or obese. And basically people everywhere are just getting way bigger than they should. But what's strange is that populations, the populations that are putting on the kilos and pounds the fastest are not us prosperous westerners in america uk ireland and 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 europe but in countries like egypt and mexico and saudi arabia these are the countries that are actually accelerating their their weight at a uh, uh, at a rate uh, never seen before so obviously these trends are really alarming because obesity causes a whole pile of health problems diabetes heart disease uh, blood pressure uh, loads of them stroke gout Cancers, like uh, carrying too much weight is a bad, bad thing. And it makes people more likely to die of new illnesses, like, or, or indeed infections like COVID 19. And from discussions with friends of mine who are surgeons, when a person is obese and presents for surgery, medical teams just know it's going to be trickier and it's going to be riskier and then there's other things about uh the epidemic that is obesity and and it's when you see it in children it's it's actually a very difficult thing for a child because uh there are other social pressures on kids that like when you hit my age, you just don't get. Um, so whether it's in the school or in the playground, a child who's carrying too much weight for no reason of their own, which I'll talk about in a second. It's, it's a tough thing. It's really tough. And if, if you saw the recent Oscar movie, um, Oscar winning movie, The Whale, you get an insight into the extreme end of the condition. And it's truly very sad. Have either of you seen that movie?
1: No. Well,
2: um, Brendan Fraser got the Oscar for Best Actor in the movie, and it's good. It's it's good. I mean, you don't walk away feeling, especially, in, I didn't feel walk away feeling especially enlightened or entertained. It's heavy going, but it's excellent, brilliantly acted, and and it's quite interesting because it's a a slant of a story that I'd never heard. Anyway, going back to that Economist piece, it says that the world's expanding waistlines are not a sign. Of the moral failure of the billions who are actually overweight, but it's a result of biology and genes that were vital to helping us human beings survive winters, winters, and famine um, cling on to weight. And those genes are still in our bodies today. And they put it very well. They said, I quote, the superabundance of hard-to-resist processed foods in recent decades has brought greater convenience and lower costs, but also triggered overeating just as lifestyles became more sedentary. Once fat is on, the body fights any attempt to diet away more than a little of its total weight. Despite the $250 billion that consumers around the world spent on dieting and weight loss last year, the battle to get slim was largely lost. So putting a price on it, Mike, um, according to academics and people who are modeling the size of the problem, the economic size of the problem, the annual cost to the world or the world economy of excess weight could reach four trillion dollars by 2035. And just to put a a measuring tape against that, that's nearly three percent of the entire planet's GDP, 2.9% of the global GB, uh, uh, GDP, which is up from about 2.2% in 2019. And that includes spending on healthcare and working time, lost illness and premature deaths and every way you can measure the damage caused by the obesity epidemic.
1: Mm, and I guess that shows why there's such an excitement behind these drugs right now, because there's such yeah. a large target market for it. Uh, so how were these drugs invented? What was the genesis behind them? Mm. Well, treatments meant for diabetics were observed
2: to cause weight loss. And it's simple as that. And this semaglutide injection, I have to say it slowly, drugs are not given simple names uh, for reasons that to do with so they're not confused or anything else. But this semaglutide injection uh, mimics the release of hormones that stimulate a feeling of fullness and in turn reduces appetite, and they switch off the powerful urge to eat more. That's basically in all of our brains, and we've all we've all um, experienced that thing—just one taste, and you just keep going. In fact, there's another great book I read, um, which is called "You're Not." You're Not So Smart by David McRaney, I think. Anyway, you're not too smart, you're not so smart. And he talks about all these cognitive biases that exist. I've, again, I've probably mentioned a book in a podcast before, and he talks about the extinction burst. And the extinction burst is this cognitive bias which uh, exists in all of us, where if you have one biscuit or cookie or one spoonful of ice cream, it stimulates a part of your brain and you want another one. But you go through this line, which in the book he calls it the, the effort, the effort, and you just decide to eat them all. And he says that this is actually what happens in the brain of somebody who, uh, and I'm sorry to raise the unsavory subject, but like in, in um, mass shootings, um, what happens is something happens in the mind of these people where they just it's called an extinction burst. They're like, whatever, I'm all in, it's I like don't once, care. Once you've crossed the line... This is true. Exactly. You're like, I'm all in. You're right. Well, there's loads of reasons, Mike, why diets um, force us. Like, diets fail. And, you know, all these diets that force us to ignore treats and things that are in front of us are hard to to sustain. And then just the the drug you mentioned, the Ozempic, which, Anne-Marie, you were telling me yesterday is absolutely everywhere in America. Ads on the subway and TV shows and magazine covers and so on. And even Weight Watchers, I thought was quite interesting, say that Mm -hmm. is planning to start offering uh, Ozempic prescriptions with their telehealth um, consultations. And by the way, I think they recently acquired a, a telehealth platform called Sequence, which Connects mm-hmm. patients with doctors. Spe- specifically
1: do for this reason, I think.
2: Specifically yeah. for this reason. Yeah. I mean, what did you see when you were in America, marie
0: It was the one of the telehealth companies called Roe, which is a competitor to him's and hers. They're, the entirety of their marketing, their public-facing marketing, was all about the weight loss drugs. Typically, I think that they had been pushing anxiety and antidepressant medication, and um, Viagra, I think, was typically kind of their field but the they had just reformulated the entirety of their marketing and it was now all about Ozempic, and it was all like very real simple it was oh just one shot a week and you'll you know you'll have this new life you'll be you'll be completely thin um and i know when the weight watchers announcement was made that they were going to be offering these drugs their stock popped like crazy it was up Mm -hmm. like 20 percent or something like that overnight
2: yeah Mm -hmm. i think Ozempic
1: has such a brand name now as well that any any mention of it is going to get that momentum behind it
2: No question. I mean, these jobs are in such high demand that it really is translating on specific companies. The market cap of Nova Nordisk, who you mentioned in the opener Mike, has doubled in two years. It's Mm. now $370 billion business, which is the second most valuable drug maker in the world and analysts expect half of obese Americans to seek help and get on one of these GLP-1 drugs uh, before the end of this decade.
1: Yeah. And I think The concern now, because we're talking about it reaching critical mass and being on subway ads and all the rest and hearing about Ozempic parties, what's the implications if someone who doesn't suffer from type 2 diabetes or obesity, what happens when they use these drugs? Because it's clearly happening. Do you know what I mean? Kim Kim Kardashian and Mindy Kaling aren't Mm. obese. And I I don't know. I don't think they're diabetic either, like.
2: Yeah, it's funny. It does raise the question. I, I mean, there's clearly defined rules of what obesity is. And I think what the common perception of obesity is and what the medical def- definition uh, is are two quite different things. Um, you can look like you're in fine shape and actually be obese. And I, I presume the medical definition is the one that Ozempic and friends kind of go with. But Ozempic is approved for people with type 2 diabetes and Wegovy is approved for people Uh, with obesity or who are overweight and have health problems related to excess weight. If you lose weight with new drugs with any of these new drugs you're going to have to take them it's likely you're going to have to take them forever to keep the weight off that's one oh, really? of the concerns yeah so it's not i'm 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 sure people will take it till they're satisfied and then come off it but the common uh, narrative that's prevailing now is that this is a uh, you'll have to stay in it in some form in order to to sustain your oh, target wow. weight
1: no yeah, wonder no, I read, no risk is doubled in two years <laughs> oh
2: tell me about it. i mean Just I locked piece, in so totally i read a piece by jeremy clarkson in the sunday times a few probably months ago at this stage and he and his overweight rich friends were were all taking it with great success and and to your point mike apparently this ozempic is actually a very safe medication and the most common side effects that are currently reported and listed are gastrointestinal in nature like nausea vomiting and a whole pile of bathroom related things. It. And seemingly um, the majority of people who take it will, hi- will likely experience these symptoms at some point during their treatment. And I think when we all take a drug of whatever nature and we, we read the side effects, you're kind of hoping you'll get none of them. That's the, mm-hmm. that's your kind of, that's success. You go, right, I'll get all the benefit, none of the downside, but seemingly um, there's a fair decent chance you're going to have to spend a good bit of time in the bathroom when you go on one of these things. But the most important thing, right? <laughs> the most important thing is Ozempic has been shown to reduce major adverse coronary events like heart attack and strokes, and it brings a whole host of other benefits. So when you look at the, To your, to I suppose, to your question, like you know, is it safe to use these drugs? Well, so far, the evidence is yes, it is safe, and that the net benefit far, far, far outweighs the net uh, cost. If you like,
1: Mm, because I suppose, like heart disease is the biggest killer in the world, Mm. definitely in Mm. America, anyways. Mm -hmm. This is pre-prevention from that. But when you mention side effects, uh, Amory, you obviously have seen, but Emmett, have you ever seen American ads for drugs or pharmaceutical things (laughs) and it's like a family skipping in the park and it's like side effects might include heart disease heart palpitations death sudden death and it goes on (laughs) for like five (laughs) minutes
0: and it's always this it's always the same woman's voice she'll be like heart attack stroke blood clot or death
1: and it's always (laughs) delivered so flat
0: and you're like oh okay yeah, meanwhile, they're all,
1: meanwhile, they're all at like Disneyland and Splash Mountain in the background. Yeah, it's like a kid
0: being pushed on a tire swing. And you're like, is he at risk of death? <laughs>
1: True, but I, what's actually
2: happening there is people are conditioned to now ignore the side effects because if you hear, oh, take ask your your um, immunologist for Humira, ask for it by name. Side effects may include that. Like you don't even hear the last bit. You're like, oh I'm going to go get Humira, but yeah. you know there are most of these drugs bring a risk, and once you identify a risk, it doesn't cease to exist. And the stock investors. I've always been very aware that, look, I can list all the risks, and it's almost cathartic. You kind of feel, oh, good, I've identified the risks, and therefore they won't happen. But that's <laughs> not the case at all. You know, you just, you just have to keep the fingers crossed. But yeah, so the, the, these ones are definitely, these drugs carry a risk that seems to be reasonably high. But it's on, on the whole, I think the benefit they deliver is just big.
1: Mm. And so we mentioned Novo Nordisk; they're probably mm-hmm. leading the race here. But are there any other public companies that you identify? Oh, there's loads. Yeah,
2: loads, loads, loads. I mean, when you think about what's happening, and there's a seismic change uh, in one of humanity's new big problems. And you know, just a few weeks ago, the Left for Dead favorite of Ark Invest and indeed of Horizon, the, the my own folio. Uh, Teladoc, it launched uh, their provider-based care for weight management program and shares jumped, I think, 11-12% after the announcement and I saw the CEO on Bloomberg or maybe CNBC and he was uh, very excited about the new opportunity for Teladoc. But when there's there's a there's a shopping list of drug companies beyond Nova Nordisk who are going to benefit from this, like Roche Holdings, which is uh, as most of our listeners will know, a Swiss multinational, and it has a big, big presence in the weight loss market. There's Arena Pharmaceuticals, which is a San Diego-based pharma company which focuses on all things to do with discovery and development and commercialization of weight management drugs. There's a list of them as long as your arm. And then there's adjacent industries. There's those that are not necessarily selling the drugs, but are involved in all things to do with weight management, whether it's weight loss clinics and gyms and fitness and exercise equipment manufacturers and health and wellness coaches and food and beverage companies. Like this is a movement. So I think when somebody gets the body they used to have or wished they had I believe that there's this kind of I I'm not going back mentality which actually will drive a second wave of of economic activity into these secondary companies. Many years ago I was quite sick, you know, properly sick um and uh I had a couple of very chronic conditions and and I never like I didn't think I was going to make a to the age of 30 it's a whole podcast unto itself and and uh through a drug i basically in the space of hours start to see a recovery and and it was i've never in my own personal experience um, kind of more felt that Arthur C. Clarke quote which is suitably advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic because I got a drug where I had pretty much resigned the fact that I didn't think I was going to get this far into my timeline and then suddenly I was starting to feel better and better and better and better by the hour and I was like this is um, a goose." bumps moment in my life because I could see. And when I got through the other end and I was out of pain and I was uh, free again, I swore I am never going back there again. And I I got entirely committed to being hyper fit for a few years and then kind of fell off the wagon during coronavirus. But my point is, as a lived experience, uh, I wasn't carrying weight. But for somebody who is carrying tons of extra weight or of kilos or pounds of extra weight and they for example reduce their weight by 40 percent they these people i'm telling you now will go i am never going back there that i'm not going to allow that happen myself again and they're going to go to these weight loss clinics and they're going to buy the the exercise equipment they're going to go and get health and wellness coaches uh i think anyway i i hope that people don't just go oh that's fine i'll just shoot up and that's fine
1: i'll be i'll stay skinny Mm. But it's interesting. It is definitely an investable trend that's developed and still developing for sure. Uh, mm. so that was mm. the weight loss drugs.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right.
1: Uh, we're staying in La La Land for the next one. Uh, in what has now been dubbed the Netflix strike, uh, the Writers Guild of America is looking at the end of its second week of strikes. With no end in sight, it seems, um, you can tell by its unoffic- unofficial nickname, what the main cause of ire is for the writers. Anne-Marie, you were looking at this one. What's this strike all about and what are the writers looking for?
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, the Netflix strike is, is pretty apt. It's essentially the writers feel that there hasn't been adjustments to their contracts since streaming has kind of kicked off. And it's really changed the entirety of the structure of how TV shows are pitched and made and how long they have to be contracted for and, and all these type of things. So the writer's basically saying, listen, we're being left behind a bit. We want the entirety of our contracts to be upgraded. And here's our manifesto, essentially. And most of their stuff is pretty reasonable. So right off the bat, like most strikes, they want increased pay the guild is seeking higher compensation for writers just across the board though. There are more jobs available to WGA writers. That's the writer's guild of America. Um, than ever before because of, you know, just the abundance of streaming services, pay for most writers is actually down. So 10 years ago, 33% of TV writers were paid the minimum rate. Now, according to the WGA, that's 49%. However, due to inflation, their pay has actually declined 14% in the last five years. And the median weekly writer producer pay is actually down 23% over the last decade. So they've actually taken a pretty significant pay cut um and that has meant that the, for the vast majority of writers particularly up-and-coming writers who are just getting their foot in the door and have minor roles within writing rooms they are not making a living wage because is like most people are aware like when you're a writer you're probably not working 12 months out of the year you're constantly looking for new contracts and new jobs so that means you know if you do get a contract and you're working for four months you need to be making more money than minimum wage because you might need to cover yourself for the rest of the year um Split among the eight major studios and streamers, which would be Disney, Netflix, Warner Brothers, uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, Paramount, Sony, NBC Universal, Amazon, and Apple. That would mean that each of them would need to chip in roughly $50 million a year extra in order to cover the pay increase that the writers are looking for. The thing that you see on the placards a lot of the time is they're looking for 2%. Um, a 2% bump, basically, um, which they feel is reasonable with the amount of money that some of the players in this industry are making. Um, Another issue that is probably extremely fair, I would say, is they need to sort out what's going to happen with residual checks. So traditionally, the way that many writers would retire is maybe they would get on a successful sitcom and write for a number of years, four or five years, and you would be credited with 100 episodes maybe, And then if you were very lucky, that sitcom or whatever it would end up being shown in syndication which basically means that a b or t or c tier channel will be showing your episodes you know for the next 10 or 15 years and uh that means that you would get a residual check and back in the day when all we had was traditional tv channels residual checks were actually pretty substantial and a writer could retire on that because he'd know hey every month i'm gonna get a check it's gonna come in it's gonna be for a couple thousand dollars that'll cover yeah. my expenses wasn't
1: wasn't larry david's at david with the, all the seinfeld reruns yeah like one of the highest paid guys in hollywood for years and years or something like that
0: yeah and they say that the residual checks that the cast of Friends get is more than a million dollars a year because it plays all over TV in the United States. It's obviously on Netflix. Um, But Netflix and all the other streamers are actually an issue here because they do not have to disclose their viewership numbers. There's never been, you know, any guild or... um, group that's been able to hold them accountable for that. We might be getting there because they're trying to do an ad-supported tier, so there might be a demand for greater transparency. But what basically ends up happening is the writers are just trusting the streamers to give them an accurate idea of how popular their show is after the fact and then compensate them. But oftentimes this means they're making virtually nothing. There's a whole kind of sector of uh, videos on TikTok, and it's these writers who've been working in the industry for 20 or 30 years. And they sit down and they open their residual checks on camera, and they'll have like dozens of checks that come in because you get a different check for each episode of TV or each film that you make and they'll be opening them and they genuinely will take out a check and be like oh 12 cents got 12 cents from that time that I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wrote that CBS script and whatever," and they'll be opening all of them and most writers just say the amount of money I've made in residuals has dropped substantially because The checks that they get from Netflix is basically nothing, and they have no way to argue with Netflix, hey, I should be making more money. So that's kind of point two. Uh, Point three is staffing requirements. So the union wants TV shows to staff a certain number of writers for a period of time. Um, An issue that is rising, and you hear a number of writers discuss, is the idea of a mini room. And this seems to be something that the streaming services have come up with, and then they're encouraging the rest of the industry to do. But essentially, what they end up doing is a creator comes to a network with a TV show ready. And they'll say, hey, here's the first episode. And the network goes, great. We really like this first episode, but we would love it if you could flesh this out a bit more. Give us a couple more episodes. Here's a bit of money and create a mini writer's room. And so that means that you're typically only bringing in about a fourth of the staff that you normally would for a TV show. So you get a couple of high tier writers in the room. You all sit around, you write a couple more episodes. And then the streaming service and the network comes back and goes, hey, we like these episodes. We write a couple more? And they say, okay, so maybe you end up writing seven or eight episodes of TV. And then the streaming service goes, great. We actually only want eight episodes of television for the first season. So that means that the writing for this show is now done. But you've used a fraction of the people. And also, you haven't negotiated a proper writer's contract with any of these players, which means they don't get a lot of the protection they should be guaranteed if the contract had properly gone through the Writers Guild of America. Hmm. So basically, they're saying, hey, we need to formalize this process if you're going to continue to say a season is only eight episodes long and you want us to write it right off the bat in six weeks or something like that. And that's that's
1: probably an issue that Netflix and streaming itself didn't start, but that has become a greater issue for probably writers alone, like where we've gone from 20 episode series to eight to 10 episode series.
0: Yeah, most definitely. And it impacts genuinely everybody in the industry. I think the WGA is just shedding light in it. But something that, again, they're proposing is this idea of they get stuck in really long exclusivity contracts because... Netflix is basically picking and choosing what parts of the WGA contract they want. So yeah, you could end up in a mini writer's room and maybe you're only working for six or eight weeks, but then you'll get stuck in an exclusivity deal. That means you cannot work for six or seven months. And they're saying, you cannot have this both ways. You cannot have me working for such a short period of time and then tell me I'm not allowed to work elsewhere. And then the final point, which is probably the most relevant and is in line with the things we've been discussing for the last couple of weeks, is writers are really worried about AI. And it's not really they're worried about AI in an actual ability standpoint. Like no writer is sitting out there saying, hey, I'm gonna be replaced by a computer. But it's more they're worried that studios are pushing so much for profitability and producers are so lazy that they will get a writer to write up a fully comprehensive, wonderful pitch for a TV show and then they will feed it into an AI and make the AI fill in the holes and start writing scripts. So the writers wanted on paper exactly what is allowed to be done with artificial intelligence. They want a firm line drawn and they want studios and producers to be agreeing to
2: this, which you can understand, yeah. you can yeah. understand for sure. Did you guys see the IFTAs, the Irish Film Television Awards, the other night? It's um the Irish Oscars, if you like. No, you I,
1: I saw that. Bad Sisters was up for a bunch. Bad Sisters, yes.
2: and yeah, yeah, yeah. Sharon Horgan won for sure. I don't know what you won it for. I just saw a few minutes of it, but the the camper, she was um. Uh, I forget, is Deirdre Kane maybe? But anyway, the the person presenting the show went into the story you've just touched on, Anne-Marie, and she said, isn't it so nice that American writers actually can get a mortgage? I was like, And the audience laughed, because clearly in Ireland, if you're a script writer, there's no chance you'll ever get a mortgage.
1: No, I was about to say that, like, you know, there's about 100 streaming services across the pond there's plenty of work there i think you got about six shows Mm. a year from rte if you don't get on them Mm. good luck. um but okay so apart from you know stranger things season five getting delayed and stuff what are the long-term implications from this i remember there was a strike was it about 10 years ago maybe a bit longer
0: it was 2007 that they striked um which was the first similar issue they were like we the writers were frustrated because they felt they'd been left behind due to the prevalence of cable TV networks where they had previously been working, you know, the U S only used to have four major networks and now there was showtime and HBO and they wanted to renegotiate their contracts, which was completely reasonable. Um, In terms of kind of immediate things that we're seeing um, yes, there is a delay in, Productions across the board, regardless of where they are. Um, George R. R. Martin just came out um, last week and said that he will be delaying all of his productions, even those that are already shooting, which I think people were surprised by. But you don't realize is. Even when the writer's room is over and the scripts have been completed, you have to have WGA writers on set at all times because it is incredibly likely that for one reason or, no- or another, there needs to be an adjustment to a script and mm. that has to be done by a writer. And that, so,
1: And that's that's being part of a union. You can't go in and change that. If you're yeah. on strike, you're on strike. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So virtually every production has halted. Um, the most immediate effects we're seeing is that live productions, so the Tonight Show and Saturday Night Live have stopped immediately because they are writing every single day to produce the content for that day. Um, but for more kind of long-term implications, as you as you mentioned, there was a strike in two thousand seven. It lasted a hundred days and it cost the industry two billion dollars in twenty twenty-three dollars. Wow. That's about two point eight billion. Because just think of The writers are the absolute foundation of this industry. Think of all of the other facets of filmmaking that are immediately impacted when production shuts down. Everything from directors and producers, but also like catering companies that are providing the catering for the film sets or people who own locations that are frequently filmed at. You know, you're not getting any rental fees mm. you know people who own companies- car parks in l.a like- yeah trailers <laughs> small like small stuff ev- like that yeah. the entirety of the of the operation stops there are in in los angeles and new york there will be hundreds of thousands of people who will be impacted by this so it is it does have a significant impact um the difference here, though, is, is the proliferance of streaming services, though, and their ability to get around the unions because they operate as as international enterprises, essentially. So the WGA only represents American writers. Um, there's a separate uh, guild for British writers that actually also is partnered with. There is an Irish guild um, that only represents about 400 people, but they're partnered with the with the uh, British guild. They negotiate together. Um and so Netflix can get around this by licensing content from Canada, the UK, places like Spain and South Korea, which they've had success with in the past. Netflix has already committed $2.5 billion to producing uh, content in South Korea over the next five years. So maybe in six months, the entirety of Netflix's new shows will be Korean. Uh, we'll see. Um, oh, well, the writers- I just
1: finished watching some of that. Do you see that physical 100 on Netflix now? No? I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't it. know if it's Korean TV thing, but there's like you know the this summer and all those yeah. like trailer <laughs> effect things. Half the show is that, so <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't be too hopeful of the Korean uh, Netflix takeover.
0: Yeah. Um, luckily for the writers, they are going to gain leverage as we head into the summer because this is traditionally when pilots are shot and when most broadcast TV is producing content. As we know, like. Most things premiere in the fall, so it means they're being shot in the summer. Um, so that could mean that traditional TV is going to bear the brunt of a long strike because it might mean that they're going to have a absolutely empty slate coming in September and October. Um, streamers are obviously going to have greater flexibility there because they do not have a rigid schedule. They don't have the same seasonality that we would see on TV. Um and that has basically meant that most writers and showrunners say that, like, yes, we have this historic study from 2007 that shows the impacts that we can have when we strike, but they were like, it's a bit unclear what it's going to mean in this streamer-dominated industry now. Mm. Um, an interesting point that I did read in The Hollywood Reporter was that this actually might be somewhat of an opportunity for studios to clean their balance sheets. Because in 2020 and 2021, production ramped up across the board to levels we would never really seen before. You know, Everyone was trapped at home and they were eager to have content. Um, and that actually now means that a lot of studios have creatives in contracts and they're being paid But they're waiting for projects to go into production or they're still in development or they're still, you know, bouncing ideas off of people. Um, I think the most insane one that I saw that came out in 2021 was Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who created the TV show Fleabag and she created the TV show Killing Eve. And she is an incredibly talented writer and performer. She penned a deal, a development deal with Amazon for $50 million. And then they passed on the show that she gave them, which means she pocketed $50 million and never made anything.
2: Wow. Mm, so wow. like
0: there there are going to be crea- like but she's such a high tier creative that's not reflective of the industry but there are going to be people like that who are in development deals Um, and so if the strike drags on studios can trigger a so-called force majeure clause um, which attorneys familiar with the contract say typically happens at about eight weeks and it will allow the studios to offload expenses. During the last strike ABC studios terminated the development deals of nearly two dozen writers and non-writing producers and it saved them a bunch of money and with the current kind of focus on profitability, this could be a good time for them. Um, Tom Mm. Noonan, who's the founder of production Bullseye Entertainment, and he was a producer on Crash, which was an Oscar-winning movie several years ago now, um, he said if they stop work for a few months, the studios are finally going to get to clean up their balance sheets in a way Wall Street has been demanding. In a pervasive way, it's playing right into the needs instead of acting against their interests. So it will be interesting to see if that plays out. However, the flip side of that is there actually might be an opportunity here for traditional TV to get a leg up on streamers. Um, Alexa Tran, who is a very famous screenwriter she has a number of productions currently sitting on the blacklist she said it could be possible that legacy studios pull the rug out from underneath streamers all the legacies um, have to do is negotiate separate deals from netflix amazon and apple with the wga and they and they would become the top choice buyers for every creative in town and leave streamers with second tier programming it could destroy streamers in the next five to ten years so it's that, that idea of maybe networks should just turn around and say right we'll just pay them more and this is a gamble that will pay off in the long term when we can attract in big talent again so that'll be interesting to see um but But yeah it's, it's very unclear
2: yeah it is and it's a fascinating area because uh for example i don't have big data in front of me but i suspect that any strike action taken to hold back the, um, or to throttle a new technology ultimately ended in failure. I don't know whether it was the Luddites with Looms or taxi drivers yeah. with Uber are now writers with AI. Basically the fundamental way that all of these people earn their living is now being hyper-threatened by this new technology and they're doing what, the only thing they can do, which is just put down their pens in this instance. And you just got to think, I would imagine that in 10 years from now, there will be production studios that are AI only. The entire script production, everything you consume has been produced by AI because, and then they don't even involve themselves with uh, the traditional machine that creates uh, written content and visual content.
0: I would argue that maybe a way that they're going to prevent that, though, is um, I would not be surprised to see major directors such as like writer directors such as Steven Spielberg um, come out and say, I want all of my content to be omitted from training algorithms, which could mean – think of his – like he has so many famous movies that could then impact the AI's ability to produce a screen – like a proper screenplay that – It would be anything anyone would be willing to watch.
2: You know, there's also, while a director uh, might stipulate that her, his uh, movies can't be used to train an AI system, doesn't mean that it won't happen because the black market is out there and people will train. AI is, you know, we hear the word exponential too many times in our lives you know an exponential increase when in fact it's not it's probably a linear to power three or whatever but like an exponential there is an exponential growth in the intelligence of ai properly mathematically exponential which is terrifying but anyway that's last week's episode let's not go there again
1: <laughs> but no that that the whole conversation kind of sets me up for this which is this strike is kind of derived from a general frustration with streaming and technology yeah. and and the the dissection between art and business when it comes to movies, like all the big director, big directors hate streaming. They want the, all their movies on the big screen. I think was it Scarlett Johansson sued Marvel about um, yep. one of her releases, one of her big movies getting not box office, but yeah, Disney Plus to- release.
0: Yeah, directly to streaming, and she had a, a back-end deal where she was going to get 1% or 2% of box office. And so she was like, you have undercut me. Yeah, yeah.
1: And, then, and then streaming, this was a big one. I think it was Matt Damon actually said this on Hot Ones, if you've ever watched it, but <laughs> streaming has cut off DVD sales, which means everyone, you, you have to make box office hit guarantees because you've lost that revenue stream from DVDs. So now that's why there's such a proliferation of superhero movies or sequels because they're guaranteed box office hits. Whereas these kind of movie movies are being made less and less, if that makes sense. So yeah. is this strike kind of representative of that whole issue? And I know it's predicated on very specific things, but is it the kind of fight of technology taking over what many see as an art form?
0: Yeah, I I do think there's a sense that the business of Hollywood is now in conflict with the artistry of Hollywood. And I sometimes wonder if that comes from streaming, but maybe more specifically, the big tech company mentality or the publicly traded entity mindset that is brought into the industry. More and more of these companies and streamers and legacy studios are publicly traded, um, which means they need to push as much value to the bottom of the income statement as possible. Investors want to be rewarded with stock buybacks and dividends. Um, In an op-ed in the New York Times last year, Martin Scorsese said, The reason for this deterioration of cinema is not a crisis of talent or audiences waning appetite for good films. Instead, he believes that contemporary funding structures have removed risk from film the formulas that investors rely on to secure returns on their investments are making cinema increasingly predictable so uh, it is yeah it is it is streamers this is likely also compacted by the fact that streaming only really works when it's done at scale as we know netflix is the only profitable player in the streaming game legacy studios like disney can at least balance the streaming out with you know, the parks, um, but that doesn't really seem to be enough for investors anymore. Uh, not to mention, Warner Brothers just keeps rearranging its streaming services because it's weighed down by so much debt. I think it's got like $10 billion on its balance sheet or something like that. Um, the tech age has made investors expect efficiency and immediate payoffs, and that's not really in alignment with the way that movies have traditionally made money um, there are plenty of film assets from the past that have gone on to become long-term winners that have sequels or merchandise or theme park rides but the studios need to put in the initial money to develop these assets and then sit back like you referenced matt damon there with the hot ones interview the movie he was talking about was oceans 11 which was produced for something like 40 or 45 million dollars think of all the really famous people in that movie they would all need to be paid substantial amounts to get them on and it did fairly well at the box office. But he, I think he says something like, that movie pulled in tens of millions of dollars because people kept buying it on on DVD. Um, you know, that's the type of asset that, that that movies makers should be looking for. I mean, you think of all the stuff that came out in the 80s, Jurassic Park, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, E.T., Aliens, Scream, Halloween. Those are all big series that continue to make movies now and continue to make a bunch of money. Um, and we just don't really produce stuff like that anymore because... It takes a lot of convincing to say to an investor, hey, this movie's going to pay off over the next 10 or 20 years. We're going to make so much money off the merchandise. The only real recent example of this type of production is maybe Stranger Things, which at the time, when the first season came out, they were paying about $6 million an episode. Um, but that was created several years ago when Netflix was all out on its own. It wasn't in competition with a lot of these streaming services. And it wanted to splash the cash out because it was trying to get people in the door to commit to the streaming service. Um It's also not a movie. It's a TV show, um, which is, again, a precedent that has been set by streaming services, um, and that is really highlighted in writers' demands. A lot of the frustration stems from the fact that more and more TV is being produced rather than film, and this is... Again, going back to streamers wanting as much content as possible, trying to spend as little as possible because they want to re-engage their audience as frequent as, as much as, as much as humanly possible. Whereas, you know, if you can put out an episode every week, you get them back in the door every week. Or if you can put out another season in nine months, you get them back in nine months. Um so yeah, I I, I I definitely do think that this is the wrath of streaming and the wrath of investors having their impact on Hollywood. They want things as cheap as possible and as kind of eye catching as possible, but you know, the movie industry doesn't really work like that.
1: Yeah, it's it, it's two warring factions, I suppose. Yeah. Um, Okay, so if you are listening to us, you're going to love reading from us. We are delivering to your inbox one of the most unique products on the market and it's completely free. No one else is covering the markets we've covered with Charity and Fearless, where we deliver to you a brand new stock pitch every week. That could be from Amsterdam, Tokyo, Paris, I even think Ireland got to mention, or if it hasn't, it's about to be. So this is a completely free stock pitch every week. You'll have it read in 30 seconds flat and we can almost guarantee most of these companies are going to be brand new to you which is where you get an edge in the market. Sign up now on the show notes from this episode. Uh, We're going to close it out with elevator pitches. Nice and simple this week. What stock have you been looking at? Emmett, you can fire us off there.
2: Okay. Well, I absolutely love this week's Charging Fearless and very nearly diverted it into Horizon as opposed to publishing it to one and all. And the business is wise. And Anne-Marie, you mentioned this business to me weeks before Charging Freelance picked it up. And um, it's a business that was previously known as TransferWise. It helps people and businesses move money around the world. It's about 80% cheaper than legacy currency exchange players, such as Western Union, and it's way faster. And I've basically lifted what I just said from charging and fearless. That's how good it is. The company is integrations with the big banks and enterprises like N26, Monzo, Google Play, and so on. It's an over-the-counter stock in America uh, with the ticker W-I-Z-E-Y. It's a UK-based business. It's $7 billion in size. And it is a really nice Fa growing it's a really nice business very profitable growing fast i think it's a wonderful um mid to long term investment and especially that it, power- it powers so many of the exchange businesses that we interact with but don't even notice
1: very nice yeah i use it myself personally i'm sure mm, everyone is Same. very interested to know um amory <laughs> what uh what are you pitching this week
0: Yeah, I opted to go with kind of a a continuation of of what we were just talking about, writers and kind of trying to make money in in that space in an ethical way. And so I went with the New York Times, uh, which ticker is NYT, uh, Trades in New York. Um, And I kind of view the New York Times as being the Netflix of newspapers because it's using a subscription model, but it has already achieved profitability. So it is just a bit more comfortable in in what it's allowed to do. Um, I'm sure they're probably undercutting writers as well somewhere. I know that freelance and are traditionally not treated very well at the New York Times, but their full staff are protected by the New York Times Guild, so you can at least feel a bit better about that. Um they just had earnings, which is today, so this was two. So for those listening on Friday, this was two days ago. Um, they added 190,000 digital subscribers driven partly by subscriptions um, in a bundle, which they've kind of become famous for. They keep adding new things into the bundle. People get excited. Um, that means they have about 9 million paid subscribers, which is pretty good. And when you include their print subscribers, that's about 9.7 million. They have 710,000 print subscribers. Print subscriptions for a really long time is where all the profitability came in the newspaper game. Um, but they are gradually declining as you know, most people are not getting newspapers delivered anymore. Um, so the New York times is really in a race to replace these people, but it seems to be going well. Um, interestingly, While uh, operating profit did decrease, which the Times had been expecting, warning people about, it's simply because, you know, advertiser revenue um, is slowing down, as we've seen in most tech companies, but uh, also expenses have increased. Um, But luckily for this quarter, they were actually able to deliver an earnings beat. So uh, earnings were expected to come in at 44 cents per share, but they came in at 59 cents per share, which is a pretty significant beat. Um, So I was impressed to see that. Uh, It's kind of a nice little business to invest in you can feel good about yourself um i suppose it will be interesting to see how it operates in in the ai world i wouldn't be surprised to see them come out and say oh we 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 refuse to use ai we'll only be using human writers and researchers but um i don't we'll have to see we'll have to see what happens um but yeah, yeah. definitely want to keep an eye on
1: Could be that interesting distinction that only you know the companies already doing well can afford where it's like no we're no ai strictly yeah yeah okay that's it for today's show. Thanks very much for joining me, Emery and 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 thanks very much for listening. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like answered or elevator pitches you'd like to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a review, sign up for Charging and Fearless, do all that good stuff. And thanks for joining us again. And we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>